1: The title of the book, The Travelers, The Wonders of Journeying in the Afterlife, and the author is Joseph Lima Scantz. and Joseph joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Joseph. Hello, how are you doing? Great to have you with us. Uh, we're going to talk about a very controversial subject for many, the afterlife, because you say this, if you're interested in how the afterlife is really like, you will want to read this novel, which I wrote, which is based on the only belief system that gives us true details of the afterlife. That's a bold statement, Joseph, uh, the true details of the afterlife. Most of people talk about death, but you don't even uh, go there, do you? I do go into
2: the term death, and I say it's a myth, because the afterlife is, is not really exactly the afterlife. It's just our second life, our spiritual life, which will be eternal, as opposed to our life on Earth, which only lasts seven, eight, or nine uh, decades.
1: So before we get into some of the details about your book... The travelers. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background, Joseph, and how this book came about.
2: Well, I'm uh, currently 49 years old. I was born into the Swedenborgian belief system, specifically the General Church of the New Jerusalem, which is the largest in denomination of the Swedenborgian belief system. Um, lo- but uh, by largest, it means the not. The least small, uh, their entire world membership is 6,000. I was born in El Salvador, uh, Central America. My father was a diplomat for for the United States, and I lived my first 15 years in various countries in Latin America. My mother was Brazilian, and she was the one that uh, was born into the origin belief system and her father was a minister of the church in Rio. Um, I discovered the Swedenborgian belief system after my best friend, Kathy Osuna, died of a heart failure at the age of 13. I was in total despair, and my mother introduced me to Swedenborg. Um, uh, I arrived in the United States at the age of 15, completed my schooling, and then I went for two years to the academy of the new church, where I learned in more detail uh, uh what what Swedenborg has to say and especially what he has to say about what the afterlife is and uh, si- uh since then i've you know i i think uh, constantly in the terms of what would God approve in the things that i do and and what is right right and what is wrong, and uh, I invoked the golden rule to start with, and something in late um, 2011 made me just sit down and start writing this book. At first I was doing it to put out my thoughts and feelings that I I felt needed to be put on paper, and while I was writing I realized, well, maybe this might be publishable, and so, I made that a goal, and after I finished my first draft in July 2012, I went and tried to see to get the book published.
1: So Emanuel Swedenborg uh, wrote a book called Heaven and Hell. Is that his? Uh, is that the basis of uh, much of your belief system?
2: Yeah, um, Emmanuel Swedenborg actually. The writings, what we in, in Swedenborgian calls writings, is actually 29 volumes long, about 18,000 to 20,000 pages. Uh, but his most famous work is Heaven and Hell, in which in 500 pages he gives detailed descriptions of what the afterlife is like, and how we are there, and what we do there, uh, which is a lot more information than any other religion has, about the afterlife.
1: We're talking about life after life. So many people talk about death, uh, but there is life after life. Tell us about this process. What happens when we go through that door called death?
2: Okay, um, it it varies a little bit on the way your, what I would say, your natural body ceases to function, otherwise known as death. If um, you die, as a lot of people do, in bed or in a hospital bed, you just go through, uh, it lasts about 8 or 10 hours, and then you wake up refreshed from a good sleep. And then when you look around, the place where you are is, is, is very similar from where you left Earth, but not identical. The reason that it's done is that for the first part, it's very similar, so you're not shocked into, well, where am I? This is weird. But it's not identical for you to start thinking, wait a minute, this is not exactly where I am. So when your welcoming angel comes in to tell you where you are, you are more ready to accept it. And then starting from there, um, you you can go and start exploring the world, the world of spirits, which is the place between heaven and hell, uh, by whether alone or in a group, uh, and you start finding out the similarities and the differences between the spiritual world and, and Earth.
1: How will we look in the afterlife? How will we look? Initially, you will look like you did
2: when you left Earth, if you, like a, most people do now, die in their 70s and 80s, you will look, you know, in with that aspect, with you know uh, the uh, face of somebody that's in the 70s or 80s. But in the in the afterlife, we grow younger. Uh, every World Spirit Day, you will lose four or five years of appearance toward youth. And after two two or three weeks of what I call sunsets, you will achieve your appearance that you had in your mid-20s. Since heaven would not really be heaven if you always looked like an 85-year-old man, for example. Uh, One of the rewards of being in the afterlife is that you look youthful.
1: One of the things that you point out in today's world, in today's spiritual world, in today's religious world, the church world, uh, tell us about the fastest growing belief system in the world.
2: The fastest growing belief system is the agnostics. And notice I said belief system and not religion. Agnostics, almost by definition, are not organized. Uh, The reason that is is that With the advance of science over the last few hundred years, let's say since Galileo or Newton, uh, a lot of skepticism has emerged about the things that are said in the Bible which don't make any literal sense, Um, Adam and Eve, Noah's Ark, um, you know, things like that. And more and more people distrust what is said in the Bible in the literal sense, So therefore, whatever religion they were born into, they stopped believing in that religion in major ways and stopped becoming active members. For you to be a religious person of an organized religion, you have to be an active member. Uh, For example, if you're born a Catholic, like there's 1.2 billion Catholics in the world, but by the, the time you're an adult, you say, forget this, this doesn't make sense. You're no longer a Catholic. You're an agnostic that came from the Catholic religion, but if you're not an active participant, then you really don't believe what the Catholic Church says in a lot of a lot of ways, and you follow your own path on what makes sense to believe in. So, counting the number hundreds of millions of Catholics with that attitude, and Protestants, and Muslims, and Hindus, and so forth and so on, plus the number of people that outright call themselves agnostics, which a recent study showed to be about one billion, it's safe to say that at least two billion people in this world are agnostics. That is, they believe in some sort of supreme deity, but don't really belong to any organized religion.
1: So you have 11 different travelers in your story. You have 11 different ones, each seeking, I guess, the same thing.
2: Um, so, uh, mostly. Um, I make uh, one of them the villain of the story, the person that's going to go to hell, just so that the reader can get an appreciation of how somebody goes to hell. The other 10, in their, from their own separate directions, want to end up in heaven. Uh, uh, Ranging from somebody that was a confessed atheist on earth, even though in reality, down deep, he was not an atheist, to myself, I am a character in the book, to a fundamentalist Baptist, and everything in between. And each one has their own point of view of of, of life on earth and what the afterlife life was before he left earth and how they look at the afterlife that they're now in. And each one have their own evils to purge and solve, and with the help of their traveler group, they, they move along that process.
1: Well, is there a way for us to rid ourselves of our evils on earth to reach heaven? Well, we on Earth,
2: we have to start the process. We have to make a, the, the decision to try sincerely to get rid of, of the evils that all of us have. Uh, the best way to start is by invoking the golden rule as much as possible and to do it enough that you make that an inner part of yourself. We all are going to make mistakes in this world. We all all are born with some inherited evils, but we're also born with some inherited goods from God. And we on earth we have to make the decision which which ones to follow. Evil exists not because it's quote unquote bad, which it is of course, but because it's also tempting. It's it's it's, it's rewarding in the in the base class sense, you know, to have a lot of money, to have powerful people, that's fun and exciting, even though it is bad, but that's, if evil were not fun, there would be no purpose to evil um, so it's on earth that we start make the decision, okay I'm partly evil, I accept that, but I will use my good side to start getting rid of those evils, however it is in the spiritual world where we finish the process where we get rid of all of our evils and then we are able to go into heaven.
1: Does God decide who goes to heaven or who goes to hell? Uh,
2: a great misconception is, and I, I noticed by the implication of your question, that someone else decides for you who goes to heaven or hell. God does not decide for us who goes to heaven or hell. God wants us, every one of us, to go to heaven. But it's we that we decide whether we feel more comfortable in hell or, in heaven, that seems strange or maybe even weird, but a person hell is not a whole bunch of pits of fire of eternal constant suffering it 's just an a kind of ugly place, kind of like the slums that are surrounded by maybe deserts or swamps and But the people that go to those places feel more comfortable living there because if they went to heaven. Yeah. They would be surrounded by a bunch of, quote-unquote, do-gooders, and they couldn't even have an an evil thought without the other people being repelled by that evil thought, since there's telepathy in in the other world. Uh, So they feel more comfortable going to hell. They can think whatever they want. They can say whatever they want without without their neighbors being repulsed. And under very limited conditions, sometimes even act on their evils. While a person that wants to go to heaven wants to get rid of his evils, and the primary purpose is because uh, they want to help other people. That's the, and they enjoy having the joy of helping other people and doing useful
1: things. We've been listening to author Joseph lima Skantz. He is the author of his book titled The Travelers, The Wonders of Journeying in the Afterlife. Joseph, tell us how to get your book.
2: Um, well, my book is available uh, to Ex Libris and also Baboa Press. Uh, it's available in Amazon.com uh, um, in both hardback and, and paperback.
1: Thank you so much, Joseph. For being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Thank you.
0: Ex Libris returns after these short messages.
3: Hi, everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix.
4: Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4 3 central on toginet.com.
0: Back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Ex Libris on Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The title of the book is I Know All Save Myself Alone, the play. Our author, Lisa Mond. In her writing, the play tells the life story of the greatest French poet of the 15th century, Francois Villon, also known as the Voice of Paris. Welcome, Lisa to the program. Hello. In addition to being a playwright, you're also a composer, actress, singer, and you've written five musical librettos. Lisa, the story of Francois Vion, How did it come to your attention? what What drew you to it and made it something that you wanted to put into book form and as a play?
5: Well, um, a couple of years ago, uh, well, that was I would say like six years ago, probably, I was given a chance to uh, join a theater company in Europe. And they were having a show called Vion. So I was introduced to the show and I started playing the part of François Vion's, the poet's beloved, Isabelle. I always loved François Vion's poetry, even since I was studying in university, uh, which was a while ago. I always loved his poetry. It spoke to me, if you can say that. So when I started working in the musical I don't know I was I was very happy about that I was given a chance to kind of like dive into his creative work into old information that exists about his life to get ready for my character so when I started doing it it ended up in a very interesting story of me and Francois Avian throughout my life so in a while I was actually writing the music for this show basically rewriting the whole show. So I wrote a musical called Francois Villon's Three Days in Paris that was running in Europe for about three years. And since then, I kept researching Francois Villon's life just because he, he became very dear to me. And I wanted to know more. And it took me about five years to assemble all the knowledge that I have about him now, which was not easy because it's hard to find all the information about him, I mean, he was the poet of the 15th century, and there are not that many things left uh, known to us about him. Basically, what we know we find in the surviving court records of the 15th century, Vian's poetry itself, of course, which survived, and, uh, you know, a couple of books, historical books, which are also really difficult to find. So basically I was assembling my knowledge piece by piece, and then it came to the point when I thought that I don't want to lose this knowledge and I want to share it, so why not write a play? Since I'm, right, I'm working in theater, I have always wanted to write a play before. It's a difficult thing to write a historical play, so I decided why not, and I wrote my play. I know also myself alone about this character.
0: And Villon was a, an interesting character. There was murder, mayhem, and all types of intrigue in his history.
5: Oh, yes, yes. Um, he was the most controversial and the most French, quote-unquote, poet of the 15th century, as he was called. His life was filled with all these crazy events, really. Um, he started as a good boy, as a scholar of Sorbonne. He His foster father was a priest, Guillaume de Vion so he he was a good boy initially but he came across wrong people and they kind of lured him into this mire of thefts and adventures as they called him so basically he just trusted his friends and they led him awry so he ended up being in this part of like well i am like gangsters of these times they were called the cookie yards so basically he became the part of this Gangsters and they were stealing and committing sacrileges and things like that. And he was getting into crazy stories all the time, being at the wrong time at the wrong place. I guess mainly, he actually meant well. He was just with the wrong guys, really. His life his life was very interesting. He he was in jail many times for sometimes because he actually committed something like thefts. Um, sometimes because it was unpremeditated. Like, there were some murders in his life as well that he committed.
0: Uh, that doesn't basically. sound very good. Is there one scene that you've created or recreated that stands out in the substance of the play?
5: Yes. There are a couple of scenes like that. One of the scenes is was the scene with Isabel. So Isabel was François Vion's beloved, and It is stated in the historical documents as well. However, there is mystery around Isabel as well, because some uh, historians say that she existed. Some say she didn't, that Isabel was a common name and could have been anybody else. So that really is also one of the mysteries. So this scene when he stands up for her honor and saves her basically from the insults of the drunk priest and then kills the priest to save himself, that is like one of the turning points of the play. But definitely also two other scenes. One scene, which is François Vian and Blanche. Blanche is one of the wenches. Uh, François Vian had a lot of women in his life, and Blanche was one of them, who was just a wench in one of the taverns outside of Paris, and she turned out to be this close friend to him. She was in love with him, but he considered her a friend. And he could talk to her. So he would discuss anything with her and in the scene with Blanche he actually, this is a turning point of the play. He actually realizes that he has been running away from his own self. He was in search for something, for adventures but what were these adventures? He actually left behind everything he had and he ran away from it because he was basically running away from himself. So this is the turning point of the play. And definitely definitely the last of the play where François Villon leaves Paris for good when he's saying he's last goodbyes to his mother, to his foster father, and to his parents.
0: This is an engaging tale. How would you introduce it to someone who doesn't know of your work or of François Villon?
5: I would say that this is a historical drama telling a life story of the most controversial and French poet of the 15th century, François Villon. that it is adventures, dangerous fights, tavern merriments, romantic relationships, and that it definitely reads as a historical detective story.
0: Anything challenging about this work besides the research?
5: Well, um, challenging, of, of course, as you said, the research, definitely, because it's it's hard to find, it's hard to work with poetry, it, with any historical material, hard to kind of put it all together in, in a place so that it reads, so that it works. But I can't say that it was challenging apart from that. I I always had a feeling that François Vian himself was helping me throughout the whole thing because whenever I sat down to write a new scene it was it would just flowing. I would definitely have books around me and his poetry and at a certain point I would just like open the book of poetry and there would be the line that would start the scene. There are a couple of things like that.
0: It's written as a play but will this appeal to more than just those in theater?
5: This book appeals to definitely lovers of history, um, of medieval poetry, medieval literature, medieval times, because it has a lot of descriptions of life um, in the Middle Ages, and absolutely actors, theater goers, directors, professional people from the field, as well as definitely a wide range of readers who just like and can read.
0: Lisa, you mentioned that the contents of this book have been put into musical form. Were you involved in the process of creating that as well?
5: Yes. Um, I wrote the music for the musical. Uh, it started from uh, me writing music to François Avion's ballads. So after creating my first show about François Vion, uh François Villon Three Days in Paris in Europe, I decided that I want to write music to his ballads and just record a CD. That's how it all started. And I chose the ballads that I like most. And I recorded the CD and I wrote the music to the ballads, which was also a very interesting challenge because it's, it's hard writing music to existing poetry, especially such as ballads that usually have pretty much the same rhythm and you have to make it all different. So as the character is different, François Avian was very different, so uh, versatile. So that was a great challenge. So after accomplishing this, then I thought about writing a show uh, based on... The play based on already this existing music that I wrote for the ballad. So this is how the show I Cry Your Mercy, Everyone, came around.
0: The Life of Francois Villon. Are there other productions, other books out there, or is this one unique? What makes it different from the rest that are in the marketplace?
5: During my research, I definitely found books about him, plays, if that's what you're asking. Definitely there are plays about him as well. I think about two, probably, or three. From what I was able to find. They're very old. Um, Most of them were not produced. Really, I would say that this book stands out because even though there are a couple of plays about François Avion, this one is based on authentic historical chronological order of events and adventures in his life, which actually also includes parts of his poetry which was never done before.
0: Fascinating idea, taking the life of Francois Villon and putting it into a play form or a theatrical production. Are there theatrical productions being done currently of your work?
5: Yes, um, currently a musical called I Cry You Mercy Everyone. It's running in New York. I Cry You Mercy Everyone basically is based on I Know i Save Myself Alone. It doesn't cover the whole story because, I mean, I Know All Save Myself Alone covers 10 years of Francois Villon's life. For a musical, that would be a bit too much. So in I Cry You Mercy, the story is around Francois Avian, the beginning of his life when he was the scholar, the meeting of these bad guys, the bad company, the crookyards, and then how he develops as a person in his creative work and his beloved women, which in that musical we have five. So it's loosely based on the play. It's running now in New York every month, a couple of times a month, off Broadway.
0: It has my interest, and I'm sure the listeners will want to get a copy of your book. The title again is I Know All, Save Myself Alone, the play. Lisa Mohn, composer, actress, singer, and playwright, and author of five musical librettos, has been my guest. The story recounts the life of 15th century writer and poet Francois Vion. Thank you again for joining me today, Lisa. Thank you very much. Where do we get copies of your book?
5: You can get the book online on amazon.com, barnesandnobles.com, and also on the official website for the book, which is com.
0: Lisa, can we expect to hear more from you in the future? Do you have other projects underway?
5: Yes, absolutely. I am writing and currently writing a new play. I have other plays that I've written already after I finished uh, I Know Olds, Save Myself Alone, so definitely there will be more. Plays and more books and more productions happening.
0: Our author today has been Lisa Monde. Her last name is spelled M-O-N-D-E. Lisa Monde, thank you. For Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The title of the book is The Lake of Two Rivers. Our guest author is Rolf Eliasson. Rolf, thank you for joining me today.
3: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: And where are you located? You're not in the United States. You're elsewhere.
3: No, I'm located about an hour west of uh, Toronto, in Ontario.
0: In Ontario, Canada. Yes. This book has a beautiful cover on it. Rolf, I'm originally from Canada as well, and love the cover. Beautiful lake surrounded by mountains and forests, and just a beautiful, tranquil scene. What's the significance of the title of your book, The Lake of Two Rivers?
3: Well, The Lake of Two Rivers actually came out of a conversation that I had with my 15-year-old son, approximately fifteen years ago and uh... he asked me a question actually two questions dad how do you how do you get wealthy like how do you make a lot of money and i said to him carl those are two different questions because making a lot of money and keeping a lot of money are two different things and so i told him a story uh... hoping it would stick uh... about a lake with a river in and a river out and that basically describes the relationship between Income, wealth, and lifestyle expenses.
0: Ralph, what's the underlying theme of your book?
3: Mm-hmm. The theme of this me- uh, of this book basically is to live within your means. If you have no net savings, uh, you're going to have a challenged uh, future net worth. And so, like I said, the the book is about the relationship between wealth, income, and
0: lifestyle. You talk about risk and return, taxation, inflation, all of those complicated subjects. Is this going to be a book I'll have difficulty assimilating if I'm not a detail guy?
3: Not at all. In fact, I purposely structured the book in uh, story form. People remember stories. If you start talking to them about standard deviation or beta or rates of return, management expense ratios, their eyes just start to glaze over, and so I purposely... uh, made it in the form of plain, simple truth in story form.
0: In your personal life, you have a background as a financial advisor. What was the most powerful bit of advice you received that pointed you in this direction?
3: I'm a very, I I, I don't want to say lucky, I I say the word blessed man. I've had wonderful mentorship, and uh, my late father-in-law one day asked me, Rolf, do you want to become a wealthy man? And of course, uh, I said, sure, lay it on me. Basically, what he said to me is, Rolf, you're going to have to learn to become a saver because wealth is accumulated through one thing, and that's savings. And so he encouraged me at age 25 to start with 5% and then work towards 10% uh, living within my means and uh, paying myself first, as uh, the author, uh, David Chilton, would say.
0: What is your current occupation? What do you pursue other than the writing and the authoring of this book?
3: I have been a financial advisor now for 15 years. I, I counsel uh, over 200 households, and it was actually it was actually uh, in, in, in my office I was speaking with a colleague of mine where we were talking about the merits of life insurance, and my buddy said to me, Rolf, anything can happen anytime, and strangely enough, within two hours, my buddy was dead from a uh, severe heart attack. So what I really got out of that was that we don't have any guarantee of tomorrow. And so if I was going to write uh, any of these memoirs down of of the mentorship that I've received, uh, I better do it now.
0: Mm. And your motivation, was it just that incident or was it more?
3: Well... My observation uh, in in life, I mean, I'm a storyteller. You know, I see I remember my mother telling me stories about the little squirrel putting away nuts because for the time when things are a little difficult to dine out. And yet I look at society today, especially young people. I mean they're they're up to their ears in in student depth and not just students. Uh, I mean, uh, the banks have been very adept at selling us uh, lines of credit and, and uh, easy money. The Federal Reserve has been printing money like crazy, and they call it quantitative easing when all it's doing is throwing water into the soup, if, so to speak. I remember buying a hamburger when I was a teenager for 35 cents. You couldn't buy the same thing today for 10 times that. That's inflation. And, you know, uh, a lot of people just don't understand how money is really made. I mean, they understand principal, interest, and time are required, but they forget about things like inflation, things like taxation, things like fees that the financial advisor is charging. And if you don't take account of all six of those factors, you will not be increasing your purchasing power.
0: Rolf, your book is an interesting read because of the anecdotal stories that are in it. Who do you think this book will appeal to, and why?
3: I've I've been giving out several copies to... uh, to friends, to family, to wholesalers, and the response so far has been twofold. They've really enjoyed the stories, uh, and they, the the second comment, and this means a lot to me, is that they want to pass it on to their young adult children. This is a book for young people. Uh, I mean, they're the ones that have a time horizon where they can utilize the power of compound interest within a tax shelter. And I'm saying, you know, that the... the the, the, the blessing that I got at age 25 and, and starting early is so important. Young people need to understand that the most powerful tool that they have is their time horizon. And if they don't start early, they're shooting themselves in the foot.
0: And financial discipline is difficult to learn.
3: It is. But, you know, I was not, I was not a rocket scientist, but I was smart enough to listen to someone smarter than me. And this is actually, a, Jay, uh, my goal in life is, is to pass on that same kind of mentorship that I got to other people. This, this is stuff that works, and this is a message that needs to get out there, and I do believe this is a book that can change people's lives, certainly their, their financial lives. Now,
0: chapter 8 deals with PIT and FIT. Explain those two acronyms.
3: Well, once again, you know, there's principle, in, it's in an acronym. People remember an, an, acronym, an acronyms and, and uh, I wanted people to understand that if they're going to um, get a an increase in purchasing power, they they have to take in, into account inflation, taxation, and fees. So on the positive side, you've got principle, interest, and that powerful component, time. And then on the negative side, you must take a, a account of that is um, fees that are charged, inflation, and taxation. Huh? Um, that's that's what the reason for Chapter 8 is that um, I, uh, I wanted people to remember those, those six uh, items because most people do not, you know, they'll go out and buy a, a guaranteed investment certificate and uh, not even be told anything about taxation or inflation.
0: One thing that's great about your book is it's not a long read. It's 145 pages. Someone like me with a short attention span can actually get through this and enjoy the read or read a little bit at a time. Chapter 12, the final chapter, is Up the Chimney. Give us a little insight into the background of that title.
3: I'm a storyteller, Jay, as you may have already noticed. But um, one day right around Christmas, when my son was maybe five or six years old, uh, we had a, a neighbor come by in their red suit, all dressed up, and the excitement was unbelievable. But once the excitement settled down, I asked Carl, I said, "How does how does Santa get back up the chimney? And he said to me, he just points to the side of his nose, and up the chimney he goes. What I'm saying here is I'm not telling you to believe things that are fake. I'm telling you to dream a little bit, because there's power in curiosity. There's power in dreaming. And there's power in observation and changing habits that are holding you back. So that's what I mean by up up the chimney, is that, you know, um, if people uh, have the correct attitude, it's not just about your ability and it's not just about your aptitude, it's about your attitude. And people's attitude towards their money can have a a dramatic effect on their habits.
0: What would you say to introduce this book to someone?
3: Uh, Read my book, My Boys Are Hungry.
0: Well, that's not bad Uh, advice either.
3: Uh, What I would say is it's a book about self-actualization. It's about life management skills. And every person is heading towards a date. And that date is where you either decide not to work or that decision is made for you because you can't work because of health. So it is very, very important that people take into account all their future needs and not just about money. Your retirement is is not going to be fulfilling if you're just talking about making trips to the bank and the grocery store. It's about what do you see when you look in the mirror? Are you happy with what you see? And to to, to answer your question, I would say this is a book that makes you look in the mirror.
0: Rolf, is that what you think makes this book a good read and different from others in the marketplace?
3: I would say yes, yes indeed, because most personal finance books, I believe, talk about wealth accumulation and, and about a strategy on how to get from A to B. This book is more than that. It's, it's, about, it's, about, uh, it's about dreaming. It's about what, what can I do for myself to make myself in a much better uh, state of being. Many people just float down the, the stream like a little cork. Roll, roll, roll your boat gently down the stream. Life is but a dream. It is not a dream. It's way more than that. And if you want to look in the mirror and say, "Dang it, I like what I see," there are some decisions that you have to make.
0: Absolutely. And what was the most challenging part of putting this together?
3: I would say remembering what a past participle is. My sister, <laughs> my sister did some primary editing before my edit, uh the my uh, publisher, uh, went to work. And I'm I'm glad, or I I think I might have been embarrassed for the uh, gr- grammatical mistakes. But I would say. Um, I, I would say just sitting down and getting that pen to paper. And uh, once, once I started, it flowed. Uh, it probably took me about six weeks to, to really, uh, from, from start to finish, on, on the, the primary uh, uh, draft copy.
0: Rolf, thanks for joining us today and sharing the background into the, uh, the process of putting the book The Lake of Two Rivers into print. From my perspective, this looks like a must-read for anyone that's interested in securing finances and securing their future in the financial market. Again, the book, The Lake of Two Rivers. Rolf, where do we get copies of this book?
3: You can get copies through Amazon.com or through my publisher, ExLibris.com. Here's a little plug for ExLibris. It's been a very professional uh, journey. Um, I was absolutely new to this, and... uh, actually came across it through a, a Google search on how to best self-publish a book. I purposely chose uh, an American publisher because there's 10 Americans for every one Canadian, and that's a much larger target target audience. This book may talk about RSPs, but it's, it's just the same as talking about a 401k. Very similar.
0: Rolf, thanks for visiting with us today. For Ex Libras On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors, right here on Ex Libris On Air.